The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Well, our guests for this week's CBF podcast conversation are Suzanne Watson, Averill Speaks, and Ryan Daniel Dobson. They're the collaborative team behind a new film, Hosea. Thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, and thank you for having having us. So before we get to the film, I'd like our audience to get to know you a little better. We often don't get a peek into the life of the people behind the camera. So Ryan, we'll start with you. Uh, Why why the film industry for your vocational calling? I initially pursued ministry. I studied theology at a Nazarene school and um, did a little bit of full-time ministry after college, but found myself drawn to the entertainment industry because I was becoming more and more convinced that it was a, not just something I, um, a a form of storytelling that I was drawn to, but because I felt like it was an effective way to invite people, um, to think differently, uh, to engage concepts that they might not normally feel comfortable engaging in. And, uh, you know, especially in a world where we're kind of moving more and more toward, homogenous thought and echo chambers um, because we kind of 
tend to say truths at one another. And if we feel like we don't agree with that truth and we stop listening to that voice, I felt like stories um, are more of a, a space that exists for people to enter in and, uh, and even enter into that space with people they might normally disagree with. So I, the, the longer I was around that form of storytelling, the more I thought, you know, I want to do this. I want to I tell stories this way, but I want to keep doing uh, the same kind of theological thinking I've been doing as I was looking at ministry and, and just carry that over into this other art form. Averill, uh, you, you've been in this film industry for, for over 20 years. Uh, what got you started down the wrist road? Yeah, well, I've always been a storyteller since I can remember. I think um, I remember in first grade, I was my teacher told us, she, she told us to write a composition about our lives. And she gave us one little sheet of paper. And I just remember like throwing that away and literally writing a book <laughs> in the first grade. Like, how much did you have to say in first grade? But like, I got construction paper and yarn and like tied it together and wrote a multi-page book. Um, so I've always loved to write um, and to tell stories. And so throughout the years, I just never really knew or understood what the possibilities were for that in terms of like what I could do. And it wasn't until I was in college that, um, you know, someone introduced filmmaking to me and um and that was all she wrote and so it, it just kind of took on from there but it's always come back to the story and I, I I've gone through several kind of iterations of you know w- within my career of writing um you know I was a director at one point I think I've transitioned I was an editor I was I've been a DP I've kind of been all of played all of these different roles throughout those years it's only been in the last few years that I've started to um, focus mainly on producing um, for many reasons. One of being that, um, you know, just realizing and, and understanding how much that role of producer um, is misunderstood, even from myself, you know, before I became one. So um, it's definitely been a, a multifaceted journey, but for me, it's all always been about story since day one. Suzanne, what about for you? Yeah, well, I grew up in Oklahoma, and I mean, for as long as I can remember, I mean, little, little, little kid, I just dreamed of being in L.A. I want something about L.A. and the entertainment business, I don't know, maybe palm trees. I just thought, life must be better if you're someplace where there's palm trees and there's lights and things. And I, you know, early on, I, I loved performing, and so I started off, I, I always wanted to do acting when I was little, and so I do you know, plays with our church and things like that. And um, then when it was time to go to college, my parents were very much like, we need to do something practical and that like, pay, pays the bills and like, whatever. So like, I guess I'll be a publicist. I don't know. I seem like they have good personalities. And I was like, <laughs> I was being an entertainment publicist. That's what I'll do. So I went to college and my first job out of college, I, um, I got really lucky because I, at that point, had moved to Houston, Texas, and the Super Bowl was coming, and they needed someone to help with their PR. And long story short, that turned into they needed a special events person to help run all of their events for what they were doing. And I was so young, and for some reason, they trusted me to to do like wear a bunch of hats. And really, that was my first taste of producing because we were producing a bunch of different live events like every city that hosts the Super Bowl has 
tons of events they put on. So I was in charge of all of those at like 22 years old. Like, I don't even know why they let me do that, but they did. And um, I kind of learned what live events and what producing was like on that side. And then a few years later, I ended up coming to LA, trying acting, doing a little bit of acting. And I had a friend say to me, you know, you'd really be good at producing. Like you really should think about producing. And of course they like got offended because I thought, well, she thinks I'm not good at acting. That's why she said that. And now I look back and I'm like, why didn't I just come here to produce? That's certainly what I was born to do. And, um, and that was at the time when, actors were really getting their hands kind of dirty and wet with everything. Like you were able to start kind of doing your own content. So it used to be like, you couldn't, you, there was no YouTube and now they're like, you can be everything. Right. And so this was like 15, 16 years ago. And so I started making short films and started getting my hands wet with producing and really figuring out like, okay, I can kind of hone these things. I do know like instinctually, how to produce like I know how to put all the puzzle pieces together now I need to learn the film side of things that's sort of what got me to actually producing is I was I had acted I enjoyed it but I really enjoyed being behind the scenes and the operations and putting all those puzzle pieces together much much more than I did on the acting side and so um that's sort of how I got to being a producer well, let's get to talking about the film. Uh, it comes out September 25th. Uh, this new film, Hosea, mm-hmm. is a modern-day adaptation of one of the most fascinating stories from the Judeo-Christian texts. Uh, let's first talk about the protagonist of the story. Um, the film is shot from the perspective of the female lead, whereas the original story, we don't even get an inch of dialogue from her. Um, Ryan, you wrote the script. Uh, why was this an important approach uh, for you? Well, in the, I guess first I should say I wrote the script, but anytime someone says that, I, I feel like it's a little bit of a misrepresentation of how filmmaking works. Um, there, there are so many iterations of the script that represent a lot of people being involved in helping me with the storytelling. So um, anything that you didn't like about it is also not fully my fault. Uh, but we, in my very early stages of thinking about this, it started when I was at college hearing Hosea preached in sort of the way that I think a lot of us have heard it before, which is a text where, um, this male character of Hosea is given the attributes of Yahweh and this female character is sort of stuck with sinfulness, you know, uh, human depravity, and maybe a little bit of the Freudian id. And, and then it's, it's sort of assumed that she then, uh, you know, it must have been in a really loving marriage, a great home with three kids, and only left that situation uh, because she just couldn't stop herself from selling her body for sex. For the first time in my life, I remember thinking, wait a sec, that doesn't sound like a real human being. Uh, not that she didn't make a decision to leave as the, the text says that she did, but that if a person's going to do something like that, they probably have a really good reason for it or even a series of reasons. Um, and that was just part of my personal journey of realizing that I had for so much of my life sanitized scriptural stories and made them not about real human beings, um, really just made them about ideas or truths that I wanted to convey, which I think also relates to how, a lot of times uh, religious traditions use their texts. So it was specifically the Gomer character that I was fascinated with. And I think as other people, as, as we started to join forces, 
Suzanne and I, but then with Averill and all kinds of other people that came into the project, it became very clear that Kate, who is our, our female lead, that's the, the Gomer character in the story, Kate's story was really standing at the center of this whole idea, which is um, what, does it, what does it look like present day for a person to have the kind of context to be living in a kind of world where they would make the, the, the decisions that this story in scripture says that they make. Suzanne, uh, why was the female storytelling angle important for right now? Well, I mean, it's obvious why it's important for right now, but, but it's interesting because we, we started this eight years ago. I mean, way before any of the things that have happened in the last few years, right? So it's sort of interesting. But I think it's because growing up and, and just all these stories that we hear from the Bible are most of the time told from the male point of view, but oftentimes there are also female characters in there. We just don't really hear much about them, and, and we don't know much about them. And so for us in this story, we took a lot of liberty because we, we don't know too much about Gomer, but we do wonder, you know, why did she leave? What was it like for her? You know, um, I just, and as a female, I think our voices, I, mean, I don't think they do need to be heard because we have a point of view. So that's what we wanted to do with this story is really kind of explore some of those themes with her. Averill, I guess you get uh, the ability to uh, to clear up or to correct or to add to anything they say to that. <laughs> <laughs> you can you guys, anything I said, whatever. You just she's wrong. Say this. <laughs> no. She's a theologian. <laughs> no, I mean I think um, you know exactly what Suzanne said. There's you know a lot of times you know in Bible stories um, we don't get the perspective of the woman. Um, you know, their stories are, you know, end up being kind of like a, a, a small line, a small little byline in the story. I always find myself, you know, asking those questions like, well, what, well, what about this woman? And I, I'm always fascinated when anyone, you know, looks deeper into mm -hmm. um, who these women are and seeing these women as, um, as full humans, <laughs> as full people that make decisions and that, um, that, uh, feel things. Uh, and I just, we don't, we don't often get that. Um, so I think that, I think it's important if we want to see the Bible as a, as a living text, you know, as, uh, or a text that, that has some sense of relevancy, then I think we need to incorporate, um, and, and think about women in that context as well. That idea, Averill, of, of the living text is so key to me because I think when we flatten these characters down to two dimensions, they stop being real living people, right? Like mm -hmm. we stop imagining that the person of Gomer was a real human being that had um, likes and dislikes and a specific eye mm -hmm. color. And, um, you know, uh, I don't know, talk to the list, almost like what an actor does when an actor goes, okay, what who is this person? What are the attributes of this person? But when we flatten uh, these people down so that we can convey truth through their story, which is kind of what's happening is in this allegorical story. And then we take that truth and reapply it to our very three-dimensional lives, our very lived lives. I think that therein exists a kind of translation problem, right? Where when 
young girls are sitting in church services where the woman in the story is constantly used to sort of depict really an idea that you can't help but over time internalize that when it's kind of just told one way. And so we wanted to step in and imagine what that person's life was like because it was our suspicion and, and I think what hopefully the movie bears out for the people who experience it is that there is truth to be learned from her story as well. When we, even, even though it's a fictionalized retelling of it, that there, there's still truth to be found in, in just putting our minds in what her uh, experience might've been like. Right. I will say you guys Everybody did. Has a story. <clears throat> you know, you might, you might have missed the boat of, of contributing to Gomer being the number one trending baby name in 2021 by, by changing the <laughs> Name. Always found that to be such a beautiful name, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. When the film opens, um, we're, we're taken into this beautiful childhood friendship between the two main characters, uh, Kate and Henry. And but the film takes a turn. I don't think this is giving too much away when Kate is sexually assaulted by her father's coworker. I audibly said out loud when this started to happen, God no. Um, what are what are you trying to say to your audience about the reality of sexual assault and the effects on those uh, abused? I don't what are we trying to say? I don't know that we were trying to say some it's more that this is this is real, right? And as a parent of young children, it's interesting now having kids the age that Kate is in this movie. It's that's my worst nightmare, like that for something like that to happen. And when we think about sexual assault, as uncomfortable as it makes everybody feel, especially when you watch the movie, because it makes you really nervous. One, what's about to happen? You know what's about to happen, and you're like, am I going to actually see it? Like, how far are they going to go? But I think that I think what, what we're trying to say is that sexual assault and um, things that happen to women and to some men, it's, they don't discriminate. It's not. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or rich or poor. This happens to people. I mean, all across the board. So, and I think it's like, this is very scary and it can happen. It does happen. We don't talk about it. Um, and then it can it plays a huge, this happened at a very formative time in her life when you're, you know, between the ages of zero and 18, those are those formative years that make an impact on some of the decisions that you make for the rest of your life and a scar that you bury and carry. And so, um, this is this is this is a hard thing to watch and it's a hard thing to talk about. That's for sure. It's important. I would, I would want to clarify for people who are listening who haven't seen the film, which maybe just in general, it should be said that this conversation will probably be more fun to listen mm -hmm. to if you do go watch the film and then come back to it. But um, mm -hmm. it's not an explicit scene, right? And I think that that was so intentional. Um, it, and, it, and it was there was so much planning involved in so many conversations that preceded it because, to Suzanne's point, that isn't in the movie because we're trying to tell the audience some kind of truth we want them to walk away with. It's in the movie because we listen to the stories of so many women in the circumstances that Gomer, that Kate ultimately ends up in, and this was a part of their stories. Now, it doesn't represent every story. There are plenty of people who might be in some uh, experience of sex work or being trafficked that did not experience abuse. But broadly, when you listen to a lot of these stories, there's sort of a, a trifecta of um, 
of moments that lead them to that. Usually it's, um, you know, some kind of poverty. Uh, oftentimes there's some form of sexual abuse and, and there's usually some form of substance abuse that gets involved in keeping them in that space of being trafficked. So, uh, the, we, we didn't add those elements into the movie just because it was fun to pile on darkness right. in as much as we wanted to invite people into the experience of the complexity of imagining the character of Gomer. We felt like it was extremely important for them to acknowledge that this often is a part of this kind of story. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you clarified well, that. Uh, uh, you know, I think y'all handled, um, you know, there's a lot of um, explicit situations that the characters find themselves in, but you never use it in an exploitative uh, sense where y'all mm-hmm. cared with these situations in such a way where while you didn't show, uh, you know, this particular vice or this particular uh, sexual abuse, the next scene you feel the emotional and physical ramifications of what has happened. Um, and I thought y'all yeah. handled that with... Uh, with so much care. Um, Avril, you were, you were starting to add to this. Yeah, no, I was just going to add to what Ryan was saying and, 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 um, you know, go back to what he was saying about, uh, you know, the Gomer character, you know, the way it's usually preached is that like, Oh, she just gave up everything. She, she gave up a good thing and went back to being a prostitute, but it's like, there's a story there. There's many layers there. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that the abuse is part of, it's part of a multi-layered story. It's not, it's not easy answers like that. And it's hard and it's dark and it's, you know, but that is the story, you know? So I don't think that we were like, you know, like just like Ryan and Suzanne said, we weren't necessarily just trying to, you know, just, you know, say something or, you know, for, for kicks or what have you, but it was just, that is the story. That is that is the multi-layer. That is that that's the nuance, right? Of of this particular char- character and um, and what and she went to, and why she had to make the decisions she had to make. I, I think key too in terms of understanding ident- uh, how a person's identity gets shaped over time, because we even heard over the course of, of the script process, we were working with different trafficking organizations, and there were a couple different instances where we were told stories that were almost uncanny how closely they resembled the literal story of Jose and Gomer, one story in particular mm-hmm. of a woman who had three kids. And in, in sort of unpacking that story, part of what's happening is this deeply painful identity that a person is, is, ha, has inhabited in their body that's been conditioned in them over a very long period of time of not feeling worthy, of feeling um, like there's, there's something innately wrong with them. And, many of those, the, the seeds of the, that kind of identity get sown in very broken early moments like this. So in order for us to understand why an adult would make a decision that to a, a person standing outside might not make sense, I think it's important for us to understand how that adult's identity starts being shaped at an early stage. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, 
healthychurch.org to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. I'm just saying y'all keep referring to this character as Gomer. It's not too late to go back and to uh, <laughs> edit any type of moment. Uh, you know, there's great work with digital work nowadays. You can make it happen. Um, so you, you kind of raised a, a point there, Ryan, that um, I wanted to bring us to next. You know, my my opinion, one of the greatest themes um, of the story you've told is that of empowerment. Um, I squirmed as I watched Kate battle through these forces in her life of uh, sexual abuse and domestic abuse and substance abuse and judgment and condemnation. And yet it was not dependent on these other characters or relationship or motherhood to make her whole or to bring her about full circle, if you will, um, with her coming to terms with herself. It, it was it was a story of self-empowerment. Um, and I wonder if y'all take us a, a little deeper there. I don't know who wants to start us. Ava, would you mind talking about the? I, I don't agree. I don't disagree with you, Andy. But one of the things that I think um, is key to us is the. We're just going to go full spoiler alert here, but I want to talk about the taxi driver scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> should we not do that? Should we? Should we not tell more than? Is there a way for you to talk in a guarded way about that, Ava? <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, well, when you say empowerment, one that what what that made me think of, it's a word I use all the time, is agency. And this, you know, this film kind of being about um, someone whose power and whose agency had been taken away from her at a very young age. And you know, I think as women, uh, you know, we we're kind of society kind of teaches us to look to a lot of things to get our empowerment, you know, and to get, and and to feel powerful as women, you know, it's like, you know, whether that's marriage, whether that's a job, whether that, you know, it's like all of these kind of things that are, that are outside of ourselves. And, you know, I, I, I think that there's something to be said for, um, you know, Kate having this, See, I said Kate, not Gomer. <laughs> Kate having this moment of realization that I that I am good, um, and I think for me that really comes out in the in the scene with the taxi driver toward the end. It's such a it's such a uh, an I I keep saying that it's an over it's it's a it's a scene that overwhelms me. I'm overwhelmed by that scene every time I watch it because you know, Kate comes to this realization and it's, it's even overcoming for her as well. This, this realization that she is okay. And really all she needed throughout this entire process was, was a hug and, you know, a hug from another woman, almost like this mother figure that um, is just there for her and cares for her. And she, she doesn't even know anything about her. And I think that's, that's the thing about it. It's like so many people in her life, so many of the men in her life are trying to change her or trying to make her to be, um, you know, the person that they want her to be. And here you have this stranger who just embraces her for who she is. And, you know, it's, it's like those loving arms, like that loving embrace that just says, it's going to be okay. And you are okay. And that in and of itself is what makes her feel powerful, right? And like, that's what gives her sort of the agency to be able to go back to 
well, yeah, that, now I'm giving away too much. But that's what gives her agency oh. and um, and allows her to take certain steps in her life. Um, so, you know, when you when you say the word empowerment, um, that's what that's what that makes me think of. It's like, you know, it's not about looking for your sense of power um, through people or through things or, you know, on, on the outside. But it's, it's like like looking within mm-hmm. and seeing yourself as God sees you. Right. I, I think that's very closely related to uh, experiencing love that I, I would argue, Andy, that one of the characters that does um, have a, a lot of influence on Kate's uh, self, you know, whether we want to call it empowerment or, or redemption is uh, Andrew, the gallery owner, because What's happening in those conversations between her and Andrew is something very different than hap- what's happening between Kate and Henry, you know, our, our Gomer and Jose characters. And again, that's very intentional because I think for the three of us having grown up in religious context, we've all seen people use a word like love and just say it at people like you're loved by God. I love mm-hmm. you, but not, not ha- always have a healthy understanding of what that means and oftentimes use that word in a way that implies that um, I, I'm, I'm sort of casting something at you, but you need to be a little different to actually be able to receive it. Uh, and so I, I think for Kate to be able to arrive at the moment she does by the end of the movie, that only happens mm-hmm. because there are a couple of voices in her life that are, that are validating her, that are telling her that she matters, that what she cares about matters, that her art matters. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, this is a, a retelling of this very unique narrative from uh, Hosea in which God instructs the prophet to go and marry a prostitute. And ultimately, this relationship is a metaphor for God's relationship with God's people. One of the fascinating and brilliant aspects of this film is that it is in no way overtly religious. Um, I didn't feel like I was watching a Christian film attempting to be relevant to a broader audience. Rather, I felt like I was watching a very real story that connected with my deeper humanity for for longing and acceptance, creativity and love and belonging. Um, Ryan, uh, if you'll start us here, why was this the approach that you took in in retelling this biblical story? Uh, I'm going to need a copy of what you just said so I can put it on my wall. It just made me so deeply happy. <laughs> I know. This um, is why we did it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Alyssa Wilkinson, who writes for Box and Atlantic, uh, a few years ago she wrote an article about how a movie can't be Christian, and she kind of, you know, in a, a halfway joking way, pointed out at the beginning of this article that a, a movie cannot take the Eucharist um, or accept Jesus into the movie's heart. Uh, and I think that, you know, there, there are many voices like ours that are asking some of the same questions, not just in film, but in music and, um, and in visual art, there are all kinds of different art forms where we're sort of asking why have, why have Christians tried to throttle art toward telling a specific thing that they believe we, that we believe, um, and rather, isn't our God very big, our God very capable of, uh, of taking a story and making it, uh, again, a space that people can enter into and experience some kind of wholeness and move back toward redemption and back toward uh, movement back towards God. So I think 
I, I've been very influenced by writers like Flannery O'Connor, who, you know, fiction writers who believe that if if the point of telling a fictional story is so that you can have a motto at the end of it, then it's probably not a very good story. We didn't want to to utilize our opportunity uh, of someone sitting down for an hour and a half and watching our f- film just to tell them something that they already believed. We wanted to tell a, a story that invited people of different worldviews, of different religious backgrounds to sit together, to experience something, and then hopefully turn to each other and have a conversation about it. And to whatever degree that may happen, we will count it a success and also count it a miracle. I mean, something outside of our control, because at this point, this film goes out and lives in the world, and hopefully people will gather and there will be some, some form of redemption and healing amongst folks because they were willing to engage in some of these thoughts and subjects together. Well, historically speaking, uh, the Christian tradition has often ruined art. I mean, some of the ancient stories we have, we don't have their original form because, um, you know, medieval uh, monks took these stories and reformatted them with, you know, Christian themes and principles and character arcs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's as if we can't Christianize something um, without letting it be, quote, sanctified. So I, th- I thought that was what, one of the most remarkable aspects of this film. So um, hats off to y'all on this. Um, th- this film is shot and takes place in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I'm sorry. I'm chuckling at the fact. I like how I had to clarify Oklahoma cities in Oklahoma as if there's hundreds of other, you know, there's, there's hundreds of other Oklahoma cities around the country. Um, so, uh, Suzanne, uh, you know, all of y'all have a connection to OKC, but we'll let you answer this question is uh, why OKC? Uh, did you say Suzanne are asking me? Because <laughs> uh, this is where it, this is where Ryan wrote. I mean, he he has a lot of history with Oklahoma City. I'm from Oklahoma, not from Oklahoma City, but uh, he this is where it was supposed to be based. This is where he wrote the story, and so that's where we wanted to go to film it. I'll let him explain to you why he actually chose Oklahoma City. But it was for me, having been born and raised in Oklahoma, it was really fun to get to go back, you know, and take a a movie back to Oklahoma and hire people from Oklahoma and really go back to my roots. Um, And I just think it was a really cool place to be. It had its challenges with weather and all kinds of things that you do with filming, but uh, it was neat to get to do a movie where it's like, where we say we are in the scene, we actually, this is really where we are. We're at this true location, as opposed to saying, you know, you're like an ex place, but you're really like in Toronto or whatever. Um, so, you know, what we had in the script is actually what you see on the screen, which is really fulfilling. But Ryan, you can explain like why you actually wanted originally to set this thing in Oklahoma. I think, you know, uh, Susanna mentioned um, at some way earlier today, she was talking about, you know, you write what you know, which certainly that's part of it, uh, having lived in Oklahoma City for a while. But there were a lot of elements of that location that to me fit very well with what we what we felt was true about conveying something from the original story from scripture, but also things that were important to the present day story we were telling. For example, um, you know, I think when you think about the character of Gomer uh, being uh, someone who's trafficked or a prostitute at, in, you know, in the ancient world, that reality is very different than what oftentimes people think of when they think of the word prostitute. For better or for worse, we still have this kind of idea of Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman 
in our head of a prostitute is someone who can just at some point dress differently and stop being a prostitute, uh, which gets back again to that sense of deeply rooted identity and, and how that's shaped over time. But the inability to just change, uh, you know, I think would have been a, a part of what was true about Gomer's experience. And part of that's related to the religious and sociopolitical underpinnings of the context in which she lived. She lived in a world where, you know, it was probably a, a close-knit community. Uh, religion was like baked into the crust of, of everyday life. And there are moral implications for that. We felt like if we set the movie in a place that was maybe an urban center or really progressive, that uh, the, the people around her might not have that same just kind of implicit um, morality that would that Kate, our character, would experience as judgment, you know, would experience as um, people know this thing about me. They, they don't like me because this thing is true about me. And that, that, that present, that ever-present pressure was a key part of who Kate is, uh, that we felt like Oklahoma represented that well. But there are lots of things about Oklahoma City that fit with the story in terms of, because of the major interstates that run through Oklahoma City, um, it actually is a place that experiences quite a bit of trafficking. Um, it's a city that is not bound by a body of water or by mountains, so it moves very quickly in terms of development. And what that means is that poor, uh, impoverished neighborhoods stand right across the street from really affluent neighborhoods. And that was a, a key part of the story as we wrote it, of Henry being from this affluent neighborhood and Kate being from this this poor one. We wanted them to live very close together. And then the, for me, one of the symbolic elements of it that I care very deeply about it is Oklahoma is just, especially Oklahoma City has all this red clay. And if you've ever been to Oklahoma City, especially after a recent rain, you see the red stain everywhere. It's literally at the base of every building. There's this coating of red. Uh, and as, as I really thought about the idea of being marked, of having identity deeply rooted in you, of feeling like it's, you're even wearing it on your body, um, stains and scarring, especially since red is such a symbolic uh, color, the, the idea of being able to shoot in a place where you could visually see that was something that was super important to me. And I, and I really fought for, even though it was hard to shoot in Oklahoma. Oh my gosh, it was so hard. <laughs> Just be honest, Ryan, you, we went there for the red dirt. Just be honest. Like, we did. Everything was around I there. fought for the red dirt, but <laughs> I mean, you, you should, I mean, what the, the things that we had to um, sort of struggle through because of that if people haven't been to Oklahoma before, Oklahoma has ice storms. So, um, you know, rain that be immediately then becomes a sheet of ice on everything. And if you're trying to shoot a movie and you have things like um, big trucks that have to go down a road, doing that in the middle of an ice storm is a terrible idea. And we did it. But, you know, it's interesting because, you know, both Ryan and Suzanne had, um, you know, they both had experiences with Oklahoma and, you know, grew up there and things like that. I had never been to Oklahoma before. So when I joined the project and they told me that they wanted to shoot the film in, in Oklahoma, I was kind of like, why? <laughs> that was like my first reaction was like, do we need to do that? Like, can we just do this in L.A.? We can, you know, go to a remote part of L.A. But, you know, I remember us going on, one, you know, one of the... Um, early tech scouts um it, w it wasn't too long after i joined the project i think we flew out there and as soon as we landed i was like okay i get it and a lot of it was because of that red clay it was because of that red dirt and i was like it, it just has a very unique um 
texture to it that I felt, you know, after reading the script, it was like, yeah, this, this, it makes sense. Like, this is the only place to, sh- to shoot this. So, um, yeah. I want to clarify one thing I said to Andy that um, I said it was difficult to shoot in Oklahoma. Uh, I mean, purely from a filmmaking standpoint, the, the people in Oklahoma um, from A to Z, I mean, just the, the crew, the cast, the film commission, everybody was amazing. The thing that's difficult about it is when you're making a, a very low budget indie film, which we were taking that um, from Los Angeles to another state, no matter where you go, just means you added all kinds of complications and all those complications have a price tag on them. So when you make those kinds of creative decisions, especially um, for a low budget, it means you're giving up the ability to do other things like all the um, gunfights and car wrecks that I didn't get to have in the movie. Just kidding. That's not a part of the film at all, but um, you, she you have like to make... lightning and storm. She had like lightning and there glass was breaking. Lightning. You're right. Because I was oh, like, you Lord. know we're not going to be able to do that, right? Yeah, but, tornadoes, okay. you know, yeah. Uh, and, and apparently um, everybody walks around singing Oklahoma uh, from the old show tune. So, um, so last, last question. Uh, you, you've poured years into a project like this and you release it to the public. Uh, what's your hope for the film? Um, Avril, we'll, we'll start with you. My hope with, for the film is that people will take the film on its own terms, that they will engage with the film, um, and that they will see some part of themselves and be open to having a discussion about it. Um, I, I think that this is a film that, that deserves discussion and deserves conversations. And um, I, hope that, I hope that this film um, gives, per, gives people permission to do that. I hope it gives women permission to share their stories um, and, um, and, and feel safe uh, in knowing that, um, you know, they are who God created them to be and that they're, they're okay as they are. So. Suzanne? That's so good. Uh, Avril, so well articulated. Yeah, I think very similar to her is that people will sit long enough through the uncomfortable scenes to be able to get on the other side and take a minute to hopefully, like you said to Avril, is to see themselves in it. Because I do think there's a little bit of Kate in all of us. And for those who have unfortunately experienced some of the things that she has, I hope this movie can bring about some healing for them. And I hope that we can have more conversations like this and safe conversations. And um, again, that people can feel empowered and that, yeah, that this is how, how Kate, what she says at the end is how I believe God sees us and how she's seeing herself. So I hope that people can take that with them. Brian. Um, Yeah, I would, Avril and Suzanne both said it so well. I I hope that this movie exists primarily as an invitation to people to think um, to think differently about how they understand love and um, how they, especially uh, how they think about loving themselves. I think that in particular, women and women um, inside our faith tradition have been. Uh, bombarded with a version of that word that doesn't, I think, accurately represent um, what it can actually exist as in their lives. Uh, 
So to whatever degree the film opens up that conversation, I will consider it a success. Jose is available on iTunes, Amazon, and other places September 25th. Um, Averill, Suzanne, Ryan, thank you for bringing us a very real and gritty story about human life and wanting loss, identity, and redemption. Awesome. Thank you so much for having us. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.